It's been two weeks, but it feels like two days because this is just coming home to me. It is um, certainly good. Even amongst the rain, and good seeing you made it in out of the rain. Let me mention a few announcements that we have, and uh, one is that we will have a meeting tonight at 6 o'clock. We're going to have communion, so if you're here with us, we'll have a communion service beginning at 6. It's not a lengthy service. We'll have uh, a church uh, meeting to follow and a brief fellowship. We have a few things to go over in our church meeting. By the way, the first Sunday of the month in November and December and January, we'll also have a meeting and we'll announce the further details. If you remember, typically our December meeting is one in which we have a uh, kick off the Christmas season and have a candlelight communion service, and then in January, a state of the church. So put those on your calendar. We'll have Sunday evening services the first uh, month, first um, week of the month uh, for the next uh, four months, including tonight. It'll begin at six o'clock. Uh, we do have a budget vote coming up, and that will be next month. So uh, be prepared for that, and we'll give you some information tonight on that. On Wednesday of this week, we're going to do it on Zoom, and I'll be running that, uh, f f and uh, we'll be answering some questions that you have about Scripture, about the church, or any uh, contemporary issues that you'd like the elders to address. Please email me or Andy, and uh, we'll be glad to answer those questions for you. And one other thing, uh, most of the announcements, of course, uh, you can get from your uh, bulletin, and I hope you take that and look at that and avail yourselves to some of the uh, small group Bible studies that we're doing and prayer times. There is significant. Also, one final thing is we have these two resources on the back table, and I'm, we went over this on our Wednesday night, uh, this track for Two Ways to Live and You, Me, and the Bible an evangelistic Bible study. I encourage you to pick up a copy, and if you need further information on that, uh, see me. I'd be glad to help with you. All right, one other final announcement, which is going to also change the order in which I was going to begin. Uh, we're going to sing in just a moment 302 in your hymn book, Rejoice, the Lord is King. But, and I was going to do a pastoral prayer after that, but I'm going to pray now because of this next announcement, which most of you by now have heard, some of you may not have, and that is our beloved sister, Aragorn Thacker, has died, and she has gone home to be with the Lord. We don't know all the uh, extenuating circumstances about it, but we do know that it wasn't um, an accident or foul play, so... Uh, it is a bit of shocking news uh, for us, and we want to be in prayer for the family and those to whom she ministered to. Uh, I think about it in particular in her life and her ministry here, uh, a lady that when I think of uh, who suffered a lot physically, but uh, I, I don't recall any complaints, and, and that's commendable. Uh, I'm also thankful for her uh, ministry to both women and children. She led a lot of ladies' Bible studies and participated in that. 
in a great way within the church and then also with the children and really had a desire to teach the children and build some great relationships. And so it is with sad heart um, we talk about the, the death of Aragorn Thacker. But we don't grieve without hope. We do have hope. And I'm reminded of this passage that Paul uh, wrote to the church of Thessalonica about those that had died in their fellowship. And he describes them as those that are asleep. And what a beautiful description for a Christian who has died. They're not decaying, they're sleeping. They're awaiting the return of Christ and the resurrection of the dead. So in that, we may grieve, but we also rejoice. I'll read this passage, and then I'll call us to prayer. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who do, who, uh, others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For we, this we declare to you by a word of the Lord, that we who are alive and who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive, who are left, We'll be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Let us pray. Oh, Father, we come together as your people. Our desire is to worship you. Our desire is that Christ would be preeminent in our thoughts and our minds. For the sicknesses and sorrows and disappointments and discouragements that we might have in our life, I pray that we would be encouraged, ever looking for the return of Jesus Christ, who may even come today. And we pray even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Why we remain, I we know that you have a purpose and plan for all that we do. May we be vigilant in all things. May we look circumspectly. May we redeem the time because certainly the days are evil days. I pray, Father, that even in this circumstance of the death of our beloved sister, that you will use this even as a means to cause life in those that will hear the words of Christ and reflect and remember of the words that she has proclaimed of the glory of Christ and no doubt the presentations upon his, her memorial services. I pray, Lord, that you will grant comfort to those that are distraught and confidence in Christ our Lord, who indeed is coming in great glory and great power. I pray for us today that our hearts would 
be overwhelmed with rejoicing in Jesus Christ that we may see and savor the glory of Christ. May it be even more real to us than those tangible things about us. Oh, Father, cause us to see and savor Jesus Christ the Lord. I pray in his name. Amen. 302 in your hymn book. As you're rising, I will read from Psalm 25. Let's rise and sing together. Rejoice, the Lord is king. To you, O Lord, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas, he has established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has a clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessings from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation who seek him, who seek the face of God. Lift up your heads, O gate. Lift up, O ancient doors, the king, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates. Lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory.
himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Romans 8, 16. 337.
Scripture reading is composed of Psalms 75 and 76. You can find these two Psalms of Asaph in the Pew Bible, and they begin on page 487. 487. I'm going to give a general introduction primarily about Asaph, and then read the Psalms individually, and uh, have some brief remarks before each of them. Asaph first. Moved by God, the Holy Spirit, Asaph is the co-author of 12 Psalms. We heard about uh, men moved by the Holy Spirit in Sunday school this morning. Let me encourage you to come to Sunday school. Paul Amen. is an excellent teacher. Asaph is mentioned at least, old at least eight times, I should say, in the Old Testament. His name is linked with David's in the significance and the power of the psalms that they wrote for God's people, for us. Asaph, a descendant of Levi, was one of the three chief musicians appointed by King David. They, and the sons and other relatives that followed them, led the congregation in singing doctrine-based praises to God Almighty. The point of Psalm 75, I believe, is that God is sovereign. He's in control of all things at all times, including. I knew this was going to be hard. <laughs> including the time of our going. We therefore must always trust and obey Him. Yes. In, in the second verse of this psalm, uh, God says that He will judge with equity. That's a word that we hear bandied about a lot these days. The equity so-called of the world around us is not the same as God's divine, unchanging, universal, and thoroughly fair equity for everyone. Remember, God is righteous, He is merciful, He is gracious, He is all-loving, and He is just. We frail humans may at times uh, wonder why evil is on the ascendancy and, and why the good may die young. Take comfort in God's word for our God at the right time will speak from heaven. Christ will return. Amen. All things will be made right. There will be equity. Amen. And remember too, what you sow, you will reap. Verse 1, the congregation sings Thanksgiving. Verses 2 through 5 is the voice of God in Psalm 75. And verses 6 through 9, the congregation's response. And then verse 10, God's voice again. Hear God's word, Psalm 75. We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks for your name is near. We recount your wondrous deeds. At the set time that I appoint, I will judge with equity. When the earth totters and all its inhabitants, it is I who keep steady its pillars. I say to the boastful, do not boast, and to the wicked, do not lift up your horn. Do not lift up your horn on high or speak with haughty neck. 
For not from the east or from the west and not from the wilderness comes lifting up, but it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of God there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. But I will declare it forever. I will sing praises to the Lord God of Jacob. And the horns of the wicked I will cut off, but the horns of the righteous shall be lifted up. Amen. The heart of Psalm 76, I contend, is that uh, is God is on our side, and he wins. He's never far from his chosen ones. He will deliver us. Yes. He will utterly destroy the enemy. Again, we see that all things will be made right at the right time according to his sovereign plan. Therefore, my fellow believers, as this psalm reveals our great general to us, love him honor him, trust him, obey him, rest in him, praise him. Yes. Hear God's word, Psalm 76. In Judah, God is known. His name is great in Israel. His abode has been established in Salem, his dwelling place in Zion. There he broke the flashing arrows, the shield, the sword, and the weapons of war. Glorious are you, more majestic than the mountains full of prey. The stout-hearted were stripped of their spoil. They sank into sleep. All the men of war were unable to use their hands. At your rebuke, O God of Jacob, both rider and horse lay stunned. But you, you are to be feared. Who can stand before you when once your anger is roused? From the heavens you uttered judgment. The earth feared and was still. When God rose to establish judgment, to save all the humble of the earth. Surely the wrath of man shall praise you, the remnant of wrath you will put on like a belt. Make your vows to the Lord your God and perform them. Let all around him bring gifts to him who is to be feared, who cuts off the spirit of princes, who is to be feared by the kings of the earth. And amen. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you that your word will stand forever and that it will not return void of having fulfilled your purposes. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven and in our lives according to your sovereign providential plan. Father, we mourn the loss of the presence of our sister Aragorn, this morning. We thank you for her life. Yes. And even more, that in her Sunday school class this morning, she sits at the feet of Jesus Christ. Comfort her family and her friends, and we pray that tears of joy will replace our tears of sadness. Great is your name, O oh God. You alone are greatly to be praised. Bless now the faithful preaching of your word. May the Holy Spirit teach us and show us the way in which we should go. Amen.
532, higher ground. A higher plane that I have found when I plant my feet on higher ground. 
we were talking about the court of Caiaphas, which John doesn't describe. He talks about the informal trial of Annas. He's the only gospel writer that does. When Annas is done with his inquiry, he turns Jesus over bound to Caiaphas. You'll find that in John 18, 24. At this point, John doesn't provide any additional details, but the other three gospel writers do. He expects his readers to know that in great detail. You can find the details of it in Matthew 26, Mark 14, and Luke 22. For our sake, we're going to refresh your memory of what happens next from the Gospel of Matthew. So I invite you to turn there, Matthew chapter 26, and I'll read beginning in verse 57. <coughs> Matthew 26 and verse 57. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance. As far as the courtyard of the high priest and going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. And now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none. Though many false witnesses came forward, at last two came forward and said, this man said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you're the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Well, then the high priest tore his robe and, and said, he, He's uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You have now heard this with this blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, He deserves death. And then they spit in his face and struck him. Some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? Let us pray. Oh, Father, I do pray that what happened here will affect us even this day. May what we learn from the text of your holy word cause us to know Christ more fully. I pray that you would indeed use this to bring many to confess the truth, the true verdict that indeed Jesus Christ is Lord. And I pray this in his name. Amen. <clears throat> As we're going through this, I remind you too that in this betrayal and then trial of Jesus, this is a an illegal trial. Jesus Christ is not guilty of anything. They found none. 
Those that are guilty are these that are holding this trial. There's two going to be here. We'll talk about this one. This is the re- what we would call the religious trial. Israel was a vassal state of Rome, and Rome allowed them to govern themselves to some degree. But when it came to the death penalty, Rome had to execute that. So this religious trial gathers together to create a verdict. If you'll notice verse 59 in our text in Matthew, they were not attempting to carry out some sort of fair hearing at all. What they were doing, in, which is illegal and contrary to their own rules, these Priests gathered, this Sanhedrin, verse 59, they were doing what? Notice here, they were seeking false testimony so that they could put him to death. The fix was in. This trial, as I mentioned, every aspect over the last few weeks when we went through this, it proves that these men are guilty. You can sense the desperation after Jesus topples Annas very easily, now before Caiaphas, and then the rest of the Sanhedrin brought in. Caiaphas doesn't know where to go because he he can't win. So he demands an answer, this time not for Jesus to comment on witnesses, which he doesn't need to, but instead to swear an oath, if you will, to, to respond in testimony. That's verse 63 where he says, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. He's asking him to truly declare who he is. Jesus has no problem declaring who he is. His response is, you have said so. He affirms two things. One, that he is the Messiah, and two, that he is God. Now, I told you last time when we went through this in greater detail that this wouldn't necessarily affirming that you were Messiah or a son of God wouldn't have been a major offense. They didn't know who the Messiah was, but the Messiah, the Deliverer, the Savior, would be a man. It would be proven in time whether he was or not. To say that you're a son of God, it could be construed to the way of all Israelites in that sense would be considered a son of God. Putting them together this way, the way Caiaphas uh, calls on Christ to make an oath, he is emphatically getting at, are you the divine man? Are you the Messiah who is indeed Yahweh, who is indeed God? Jesus' response is, yes, I am the divine Messiah, not just a Savior, but also God incarnate. You have said so. And Jesus clarifies what he's saying so that there is no misunderstanding at all when he continues. Notice our text in verse 63. But I tell you then... From now on, you'll see the Son of Man. By the way, this is a divine title. This is not speaking of his humanity. This is a divine title taken from Daniel 7.13. They knew it. The Son of Man. 
You'll see him at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds. This is imagery of the sovereign Lord. See Psalm 110. Caiaphas knows what Jesus is saying. He is saying, I am God in flesh. I am the Savior of the world, the only one. I, I am in human flesh, but I'm God. I am Yahweh. And at this, Caiaphas, in absolute desperation, tears his robes. Verse 65. The high priest is forbidden <coughs> to tear his robes. See Leviticus 10. They created some sort of tradition where in certain cases of blasphemy, the Talmud said they could, but the Holy Scriptures said they could not. Moses' law was not to be overridden. He demonstrates his own guilt by tearing his clothes at this point. And he, and he calls for a verdict. He says, notice verse 65, he has uttered blasphemy. And then he calls for a sentence to the rest of the Sanhedrin. Verse 66, what is your judgment? He deserves Death. This is the first vote in the capital case. And if you remember where we've been through this, again, all of this is illegal. The timing of it, the structure of it, even the fact that the, before a verdict is brought in, they're supposed to wait overnight. This group cannot wait because, oh yeah, a religious experience is coming on called Sabbath. And so they must deliver a verdict that morning to... Pilate, so that they can have Christ crucified before Sabbath. They claim Jesus has committed blasphemy, but it is this very assembly who is blaspheming God. The Lexan Bible Dictionary describes blasphemy this way, verbal insult uttered intentionally and malevolently against God, revealing the offender's contempt for him. That is indeed what they are doing. What these men failed to do and what they should have done in the response of Jesus this oath that Caiaphas tells him to utter, what they should have done, and by the way, what is incumbent upon all men, every person that you see in the world right now, is to truly examine the claims of Jesus Christ and consider who he is. Jesus' claim right here is that he is God incarnate and that he is the Messiah, the only Savior of the world. This precludes any other way of salvation. It is in Jesus' own teaching, remember, where he said what? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father, how? But by me. It is incumbent on everyone to e examine this very proclamation. And should I say this, if you affirm those two truths, that Jesus is God incarnate and that he is the only Savior of the world, this will change everything about your existence. 
If these, true, if these claims are true, which I would affirm they absolutely are, then you are obligated to confess Jesus Christ is Lord. Anything less is blasphemy. And worthy of death. Eternal death. Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin blasphemed Jesus by accusing him of blasphemy. They're the ones who intentionally and malevolently mocked him and discarded what he said. James Boyce does a good job in considering this very point and that he calls in his commentary, a question not asked. There was no defense at all asked for to these monumental claims that Jesus made. The basic right of this accused was finally omitted. They didn't bother to even consider the claims that Christ has made, which are of great magnitude. Here's how Boyce puts it in his commentary. We have to say at the beginning that if the proper requirements of Jewish law had been followed, as they should have been, there would have been no need for defense for the simple reason that the trial would never have proceeded thus far. It was illegal, as I've demonstrated as well. It was at night, which the Jewish law forbade. It was through the agency of an accomplice, an informer, you know, Judas, which was illegal. There had been no formal charge upon which the warrant of arrest had been issued. Each of these illegalities should have resulted in an immediate end to the prosecution and release of the prisoner if proper procedures had been followed. Again, the conduct of the trial was illegal. Those who should have been Christ's defenders, that's the Sanhedrin, that's their role, they became their accusers. The high priest intervened, which he had no right to do. Most of all, there was no proven charge against the prisoner. He was convicted in the end only because his voluntary answered a question put to him by the high priest in which he claimed to be the divine Son of God and the Messiah. But assuming that everything had been legal up to this point, which it was not, assuming that the arrest had been properly executed upon proper warrant, that charges had been properly filed and established under cross-examination, that these charges had related to Christ's claim to be God's unique Son, the Messiah, what was the next step? This is what Boyce is pondering. What is the next step under Hebrew law? The next legal step. Assuming the prima facie case of guilt had been made, what should the judges have done next after hearing the case against him? The answer is that they should have begun to inquire diligently into all matters pertaining to the truth and falsity of his claim. In other words, the greatest illegality of the trial of Jesus was the question not asked. For having heard Christ's statement that he indeed was Christ, the Son of God, 
the high priest should have then asked, what sign do you have then that we may see and believe? The absence of this question reveals the trial to be a judicial murder rather than a fair inquiry into Christ's innocence or guilt. They didn't ask. They didn't ask. They didn't look for evidence. The fix was in. They already had their desired verdict. In fact, they just called for an affirmation of that. At this point, I'd like to pause and ask ourselves, at this point, and if we were even there at that time, I would like to ponder what should have been done. What verdict should have been rendered? Is there any evidence that would substantiate this claim that Jesus makes, which is outstanding, that, that he is God incarnate, that he is the Messiah? To find an authoritative source for it, we can look no other than the Holy Scriptures, inspired by God. If you remember, through our teaching in the Gospel of John, I'll remind you of this passage that Jesus says in 539 of this gospel. He's dealing with those that do reject him at that time. And his response to them is simply this. You, <coughs> you search the scriptures because in them you think that you have eternal life. It is they that bear witness of me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I don't receive glory from people. But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you don't receive me. If another comes in his own name, you receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Don't think that I'll accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, whom you have set your hope on. For if you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if you don't believe his writings, how will you believe my words? He points to an authoritative source. It is the Holy Scriptures, because they all speak of Christ. And we could spend a month of Sundays now bringing up that very testimony for you to examine from the Holy Scriptures from the very beginning and to the end that would all affirm that very statement that Christ is saying that he indeed is God, he is Messiah. But with the time that remains today, I'll just see what I can fit in. I'm going to read a few texts of Scripture for you because I'd rather you hear it from the Word of God than from me. I'm not going to include everything. We don't have time to include everything. But I hope at least I can get you thinking in this term and perhaps you will think of passages even better than the ones that I'm able to shoehorn in today. And that's fine because that's part of the purpose and we want you to think in that way. The prophets talked a lot about the birth 
of the Messiah who would come, his lineage and, and legacy. As Jesus referred to in the very beginning, Moses wrote of what is going to happen in God's cursing of the devil. In, in Genesis chapter 3, we call this the proto Evangelion, it is uh, a kind of picture of the gospel ahead of time. To that, God would say in judgment, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. You see the cross, don't you? This is progressively revealed, but here it is right in the beginning, in the judgment of Satan, that there will be what? A seed of the woman. That's an irregular way to speak, isn't it? You know the rest of the story. It is revealed. And by the way, they would have known the Sanhedrin, the rest of this story. They would have looked to Moses and to the prophets they would have looked to Isaiah, for example. Should we bring him to our, as a witness? He will clarify this for us. A passage you're familiar with, Isaiah chapter 17. I'm sorry, 7 and verse 13. Hear then, house of David, is it too little for you to be weary, that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign, behold... The virgin shall receive and bear a son, and you shall call his name, what? God with us. That's what Emmanuel means. This is what we call progressive revelation. As scriptures are gone through, it isn't that anything is added or changed. It's that there is further clarification. It continues on. And might I say, the fulfillment of that clarification is in the very person of Jesus Christ. When he comes, all these questions are answered. And then confirmed by the apostles who would follow. And finally, a final revelation or explanation. That's what the book means. The last book of the Bible in which John writes. God with us. Could we call, and you can, you can choose to listen or, or turn. We just have many here and I'll see what I can get through. You could call to the stand... Joseph, a godly man, Matthew describes what was going on with him. He wasn't called to this tribunal, by the way. But, but Joseph, known to be a godly man, a God-fearer, he was, Mary was betrothed to him, Matthew writes in Matthew 1.18. Before they even came together... She, being Mary, was found to be with a child from the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Fulfilling that Moses had said, Isaiah had said, and others. It is from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man, that's his character, unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Under their law, he could have had her killed. But he was a just, fair, good, and godly man. But as he considered these things, Matthew tells us, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. 
She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That's what Jesus means. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said by the prophet. You've heard it. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And Joseph woke from the sleep. He did as the angel of the Lord commanded. He took his wife and didn't know her until she had given birth to a son, and, she, and he called his name Jesus. Did you hear a word from Joseph? And this experience he had, this testimony, vision from this angel. Perhaps we could call Mary and Elizabeth to testify. Luke records this in Luke chapter 1 and verse 39. In those days, Mary arose and she went to haste in the hill country to a town of Judah and when she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary. The baby leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb and why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? They didn't hear this testimony. For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. God, Messiah. This is a testimony that this... Godly girl Mary gives that Elizabeth confirms as well. This testimony wasn't given. She's, Mary goes on to say in verse 48, For he has looked on my humble estate of his servant, and from behold, now all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. Holy is his name. And mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Wise men come and testify that indeed this is the God-man. The prophet Micah had written about where he would be born. Micah chapter 5 and verse 2 you, Bethlehem, Ephrata, who are little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth the one who is to be ruler in Israel, who is coming forth from old, from ancient of days. You understand, that's a pointing back. This is God incarnate that is going to be born. And specifically, where is he going to be born? Not just anywhere, but in a city of Bethlehem. This is why it's so critical then when Matthew, should we call him to come forward and, and describe this very story in which the wise men and Herod both testify to this very fulfillment and reality? I'll read it for you, Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. 
after Jesus was born in Bethlehem. <laughs> in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men came to the east, from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? How do they know where he would be born at? Because it had been written where he would be born. And God miraculously led them by a marker in the sky. We have saw his star when it rose. And we have come to worship him. Why would you worship this one man born in Bethlehem? Because it's not just a man. This is God incarnate. And Herod, the king heard this while he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him. Of course, Jerusalem is troubled because... If Herod's in trouble, he's going to make everyone else feel it. So, assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, oh yeah, this is the group that's out there declaring blasphemy, right? Put him to death. Yeah, they were in on it. They were aware of all of this. You don't even have to bring this testimony. They knew about it. They're purposely ignoring it. But Herod inquires of them where Christ is going to be born. Do they know where Christ is going to be born? Of course they know where Christ is to be born. They have the scriptures. And they reply, in Bethlehem, Judea, for it is written of the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For, for from you shall come a ruler who shall shepherd my people Israel, the Messiah. Well, you probably know the rest of the story from Herod's point of view. <coughs> the wise men tricked them to some degree. In verse 16 of Matthew 2, Herod says falsely that he wants to worship Christ too. He doesn't, and they know it. So they take off and go a different way. When Herod sees that he was tricked by these wise men, he became furious, and he sent and killed the male children in Bethlehem. Why Bethlehem? Because that's where Christ, the Messiah, God incarnate, was to be born. And in all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise man. When did that testimony get in? And then what was fulfilled then, spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. You can find it in Jeremiah 31, who describes all of the events that are going to occur around the birth of Christ. Here's what he says. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children because she refused to be comforted because there are no more. These, this, even this death of the children prophesied around the birth of Christ. We can get the testimony from 2 Samuel chapter 7 that a royal lineage of the Messiah would, would have to be and must be from the house of David. 2 Samuel seven twelve. When your days are fulfilled you shall lie down with your fathers. Speaking of David the king. I will raise up 
your offspring after you, who shall come from your body. That is, see, the royal lineage. And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish his throne of his kingdom forever. This king that is coming must have this physical link, but he also must live forever. Do you know who that might be? Yes, the one who makes that very claim and testimony, I am of the house of David, and I am king, and I will reign eternally. As Christ says, you will see me seated in the throne of power and coming in great clouds. This is an imagery of his authority and glory. The king must come from the offspring of David. The king must live forever. At that very time, they would have had temple records. Temple records that did preserve the line of David. Names. The northern kingdom, they're all lost. They were destroyed 722. But Jerusalem was able, even in their destruction, to keep their temple and to keep the records. That's where they kept them. This is where Matthew gets this report from. By the way, it's a report that these Sanhedrin would have had. Matthew just puts it this way, very succinctly in his gospel. This is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David the son of Abraham. He is from this royal line. His verse 6 of chapter 1 in Matthew, the Jesse, the father of David, the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Matthew 1, 16, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born who is called Christ. This is his legal right to the throne through his legal adopted father, Joseph. His physical lineage is also demonstrated through Luke's record in which he points back to Mary's lineage directly through the Davidic line as well. They had those records. They can see that he qualified for being the Messiah in his direct lineage. But we're not done. There's many, many more witnesses that I could call. Let me call a few more while we have time. In Luke chapter 2, you may want to turn to Luke. I'll look at two passages there. Luke chapter 2. They're looking for witnesses to make testimony. And none of their witnesses can agree on anything. Here's some witnesses they could have called. Verse, two, verse 8 of chapter 2. During the birth of Christ, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them, 
And they were filled, filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, behold, I bring you good news, a great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. God incarnate, the Messiah. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. They cannot help break out a great cacophony of glory and joy when this statement is made. Do you understand the most profound thing here? It is Christ the Lord. And they would find him. It would absolutely overwhelm their life. They could give testimony to that very thing and point to the fact all heaven broke loose in a, in a glorious praise to Christ. We found them exactly as we were told. You know, they could have looked to their own priestly class too, by the way. They didn't want to hear of these second-class citizens, these shepherds. They didn't respect them, but they would have been a good witness. They didn't respect them because they wouldn't say what they wanted them to say. If they would have spoke evil of Christ, they would have accepted their testimony. But they wouldn't hear this. But they could have asked Zechariah, and that's in Luke uh, verse 67 of chapter 1. One of their own, a, a priest, Zechariah, they didn't call him. Verse 67 of chapter 1 in Luke, he was filled with the Holy Spirit and he prophesied. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. And he has raised up a horn of salvation in his house of his servant David. This is pointing to the Messiah who it comes from his servant David. Here he is filled with the Spirit prophesying this very thing and ties it to what has been already proclaimed in the Old Testament, verse 70, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hands of those who hate us, to show mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, that the oath sworn to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him in all our days. And you, child, will be called prophet of the Most High. He's speaking of his own son. We'll talk about him in a second. John the Baptist, we call him. He will be the prophet of who? The Most High. He will be a prophet of the Lord. You will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. Who is this Lord? It is God incarnate. It is the Messiah. That is his testimony affirming exactly what Jesus had made claim to. 
his own son, he says, you will go forward and do this in his prophetic message to give knowledge of the salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. Who can forgive sins but God? Why? Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. In him was light, and the life was the light of man. His son, Zechariah's son, John the Baptist, would come forward and give great testimony. They, the Sanhedrin knew of him very well. And here you may want to flip over to Matthew chapter 3. I'm going to only pick up a couple more texts and we'll be done. John the Baptist comes forward and not like Matthew's explanation of it. He comes forward. He was known as a prophet as he was prophesied to do so by his uh, priestly father, Zechariah. He says his message is verse 2. John's preaching in the wilderness, and his message is this, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Beloved, that's a good message right now. Every day. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of the prophet Isaiah when he said... The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John, of course, comes and he's wearing a camel's hair and leather belt, eating uh, locusts and honey, the kind of imagery that an Old Testament prophet would have in this transitional period. And he's engaging in baptizing that for the repentant, looking forward to the repentance of sin as an outward demonstration of confessing sin. Christ, uh, the, these very Sanhedrin come to him, verse 7, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, John calls them in his gospel, the rulers, uh, the, Jew, the Jews, the same group. They come to his baptism. And here's what John the Baptist says to him. Maybe this is why they didn't call him to witness, testify. He sees them and he says, you brood of vipers. <laughs> he didn't mince any words, did he? Who's warned you to flee from the wrath to come? They, he knows that they're not coming to repent and confess their sin. That's why he's pointing them out. Their hypocrisy in coming. He calls them to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And don't presume on yourself to say, Well, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree that doesn't bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. That is looking forward to it. But he who is coming after me, who would that be? The Lord. He who is coming after me is mightier, mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. That is a regeneration and also wrath that is coming for those that will not confess Christ as Lord. So be in great fear. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear the threshing floor and gather his wheat in the barn, but the chaff, 
He will burn with unquenchable fire. And then Jesus came from Galilee to Jordan to John to be baptized. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized of you. Why, why do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be. So for now, thus fulfilling, it's fitting to fulfill all righteousness. He consented. And Jesus was baptized. Immediately he came up from the water and behold, the heavens were open to him. And, the, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice, an audible voice comes from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Here you have the triune witness of God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. The crowd around that, John himself and others, couldn't you bring multitudes of witnesses to say what indeed had happened? None of them were called. At the very least, I suppose, beyond the testimony of what people heard and said, how about what Jesus did? Jesus would read in the temple. Luke chapter 4 records us the, the reading here that he read from the scroll of Isaiah. As he unrolls it in Luke chapter 4, Jesus reads the portion that's written thus. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering sight to the blind and to set at liberty those that are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and all the eyes of the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began saying to them, Today this is being fulfilled in your hearing. You know the part he didn't read? Is the judgment to come. Not that it won't, it will. But right now is the day of salvation. Right now is the day of confession. Right now, this whole court should gather themselves together and not render their clothes, but throw themselves in calling for mercy in repentance. The Messiah, as the prophet said, was going to engage in miraculous efforts. It would be demonstrated physically, not the phony stuff that you're going to see on these TV sideshows, which are blasphemy of the work of the Holy Spirit. We're talking people who actually receive their sight, people who actually receive their hearing, who Jesus would call on a paralytic that's laying down there for his entire life and tell him to stand up immediately. You know, you, 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 your muscles atrophy in that position. Think of a guy in a wheelchair with polio his whole life and is, and is atrophied, and then you tell the guy to stand up and then carry his wheelchair around. This is what happened with Jesus. And it just wasn't a one-time thing. This was happening everywhere. Everyone was being healed. No wonder once the word came out, he got mobbed and he had to go away privately to get, to, to get away from all of that. Because ultimately, beloved, you, we don't need temporal healing. We need eternal healing. Healing from sin. And D Jesus said, that's the greatest gift. 
And what is greater, to say, you're forgiven, or pick up your bed and walk? But so that you would know that Jesus is the Christ, I say to you right now, pick up your bed and walk. Because in our world, we think that's a great thing. It isn't. Being forgiven of sin is great. In the Gospel of John, John records seven key signs. Not that that's all there was, there was more. And he would explain in his Gospel towards the end where he says, look, if we put all that Jesus did, the, the, all the books of the world could not hold what he did. Right? They're, they're phenomenal. But seven key, he mentions here, the turning of the water into the wine in John 2, cleansing of the temple in John 2, healing the nobleman's son, John 4, healing the lame man, John 5, feeding the multitude, John 6, healing the blind man, John 9, and finally raising Lazarus from the dead. And he really was a dead man, John 11. A man in decayed state. One of their members, Nicodemus, testifies to this very fact. In John chapter 3, we're all familiar with that, aren't we? Nicodemus, a Pharisee, a ruler of the Jews. Can you put in here a member of the Sanhedrin court? He was noticeably missing. He was? Yeah. He wasn't there. You know how you know? Because all of them said guilty. I'll tell you what. Nicodemus was not going to render that verdict. And in fact, if you remember under Jewish law, if all of them agreed, then they knew the fix was in and that was an illegal verdict. So I don't know whether it's intentionally that they didn't call him or Nicodemus knew the fix was in and so he didn't even bother showing up to demonstrate their further guilt because they weren't going to listen to him. We don't know that. But I know one thing. He was an honorable man that they should have listened to his witness. I know another thing. They didn't call his witness. They didn't listen to him. I'll show you two places. One in John 3. He comes to Jesus, this describes him, and he says this, Rabbi, we know we, we, not just him, we, that is the Sanhedrin, all the folks that he's hanging out with, we know that you're a teacher come from God because no one can do these signs unless God is with him. There's some of the things I explain, what you read in the gospel. Listen, nobody can do this unless this is, they are empowered by God. He knows that. And, of course, Jesus points him to his real need and that of being born again, of seeing the kingdom of God. But he affirms that. And then later in John chapter 7, you find Nicodemus again. John seven fifty. He had gone before him, and here he is with the Sanhedrin again, and they're trying to convict Jesus here in a confrontation, but Nicodemus challenges his cohort by saying in John seven fifty one, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he has to say? They didn't want to learn what he has to say. 
Those that would reject Jesus Christ as Lord are doing so because they don't want to learn what he has to say. And therefore, they are guilty. We'll learn more about Joseph and we'll talk about him in the next chapter. I mean, I meant to say Nicodemus and an associate of his, Joseph of Arimathea, who was very also like, at least a prominent man and very likely a member as well of the Sanhedrin who was not part. John records this in 1938. Joseph of Arimathea, a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for the fear of the Jews, he asked Pilate that he might take away the body. And Nicodemus also, who was with him, came and they brought spices to anoint the body. Joseph of Arimathea, I'd argue, and Nicodemus, they weren't brought before this council. Had they, were, had they been, they would have testified to a different story. They also demonstrate that indeed they looked to the Holy Scriptures. They learned from what he said, and I'd argue that they indeed confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. C.S. Lewis has an interesting philosophical argument, which I think does hold up. It's often called the trilemma. You've heard of it before. Jesus is either Lord, liar, or lunatic. A man, as he says, who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said wouldn't be a great moral teacher. He'd either be a lunatic on the level of man who says he's a poached egg, or he would be the devil of hell. You must make a choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else he's a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit on him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. He didn't intend to. Now, it seems obvious to me that he was either a lunatic, that he was neither a lunatic nor a friend, fiend, and consequently, however, strange or terrifying, as unlikely as it may seem, I have to accept and view that he was and is God. I'll just take the words of Simon the Peter. He was among him. When Jesus asks, well, what, what do men say about me? A lot of men call him great prophet, this, that, or the other thing. Here's what Simon Peter said. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. What is your confession? Let us pray. Father, indeed, we are blessed every day because of your grace and mercy granted to us in Jesus Christ the Lord. I pray that we would be reminded daily, reflect and renew on that truth. And may that be the anchor that holds us safe in any harbor, in any peril, in any storm. I pray this in Christ's name.
Amen. Beloved, you may take a moment now privately just to quietly think and reflect on these things. If you need to confess Jesus Christ as Lord, do it indeed right now. Renew it in your mind to, in your daily life, take a moment to think on these things. For the riches of the glory of your grace manifested to us in Christ Jesus our Lord. May his peace, joy, and comfort be with us this day and forevermore. In Christ's name, amen. So I'll stand in 285 in our hymnals, 285. I will sing of my Redeemer. Father, our God and our refuge and strength, who is a very present help in our time of trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose stream makes glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when the morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. But the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Father, we're indeed thankful for this. Amen and amen. You're dismissed. <laughs>